3: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders.
4: Come and find yours.
5: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit juvederm.com. That's J U V E D E R M.com.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online.
4: A little late to echo the announcement, but you may have noticed Tales of Terrify's second cousin twice removed, the Drabblecast, a podcast for strange stories, by strange authors, for strange listeners, had quietly disappeared from the realm of podcasts. But it has been ghoulishly resurrected with Norm Sherman, who may or may not also be undead. I'm not sure I'll get the District of Wonders Court Sorcerers to look into the matter. Welcome back, Drabblecast. Children of the night, I have told you time and time again how much I love zombies. But there is something else that I love just as much that sometimes shows up in our stories. Cults. I recently took in a documentary about the Source family, titled the same, which covered the story of Father Yod and the Source family, which was a bigger deal in Southern California than you might know. That cult cranked out a ton of really terrific psychedelic music also. I think you can find a sampling on most of the big streaming sites. Another documentary I might mention, Holy Hell, 25 Years Inside a Modern Cult, is another difficult watch about a spiritual movement that seemed to start optimistically, but then turn into something horrible. You may also own some of Oneida Limited's silverware or flatware. That company came out of a Christian perfectionist commune in the 19th century that practiced free love. I remember watching Janet Reno going toe-to-toe with David Koresh, also a musician, and the Branch Davidians on television, and I can't read enough about the Manson family or Jim Jones. But I'm also a bit of an apologist for spiritual movements. As a religious person myself, I have to be honest. The difference between one of the big mainstream religions and a small spiritual movement seems to be only the size of the membership roster. After finding spiritual leader Teal Swan's videos on YouTube and enjoyed a few of them, I was happy to find Gizmodo's podcast, The Gateway, hosted by Jennings Brown, who investigated Miss Swan, her story, her beliefs, and gave plenty of room to talk to her detractors as well. I'd highly recommend this short podcast series for you, and I've linked in the show notes as well where you can find further links to subscribe with whatever service you'd prefer. I personally have mixed feelings on what Teal Swan teaches, but is she a leader of a cult? I think after listening to the podcast, I'd say, not yet. And one more thing. Teal Swan's work, and by extension the Gateway's podcast, deal heavily in suicide. So if that is a topic that might not be for you, perhaps take a pass on it. So, revisit the Drabblecast. They're back. And if you are so inclined, give a few hours of your time to Jennings Brown. And the Gateway. Ah, and on one piece of Tales to Terrify business before we get on to our fiction for the evening. Authors, it is that time again. Editor Scott Silk is pleased to announce that we will be opening up submissions in August. Watch Tales to com for specifics. We're shooting for the first of the month. Let's get on to our stories for the night. Elias Perry is a union iron worker with far too many hobbies. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee in a slowly collapsing elderly house with an excessive amount of cats and dogs. He does decorative knotwork, stained glass, welds, and occasionally writes. He has no Facebook, no Twitter, and no Instagram and lives under a virtual rock. Ah, Elias, I love that. This is his first published work. Children of the Night, listen with me to Elias Perry's There Are So Many Monsters, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: See, Detective, I think you're mistaken, invoking the MacDonald triad. It's considered inaccurate these days. If you examine its history, you'll find that every major study was deeply flawed. Insofar as it applies to me, I was never much of a bedwetter after toilet training. I like a good house fighter as much as the next guy, but mine were incidental. They were red herrings. Or... For evidence disposal born of expedience and not compulsion and regarding animal abuse when you visited my home did my cat seem malnourished were my dogs scared i guarantee that my beagle came right up and leaned her head against your knee not really the behavior of an abused animal was it which brings us to the conditions of my confession My lawyer says that you've furnished proof that all my animals have been surrendered to reputable rescue organizations. So we'll begin. May I see your pen? I like to annotate this list a bit. No, Detective. I assure you that I will not assault you with it. My desire to murder you specifically is entirely academic. It's how I feel toward humans as a whole. You're in no actual danger. Thank you. None of these Jane Doe's are mine. None of these women, either. These men, no. These three men, yes. The lawyer, the preacher, the little league coach. I killed them. These two, yes. These two, no. Oh, those gentlemen? They fought dogs. Of Course you didn't. I disposed of the evidence before I called the police. The puppies and mothers went to rescue. The male came home with me. That big pit bull with the ripped ears? That was his old home. Oh, I just cut off the hands to slow you down a little. Muddy the evidential waters. Stewed them and fed them to the dogs. Seemed like a nice bit of poetic justice. You can eliminate this second page entirely. I've never killed a prostitute. Yes, I understand that serial killers, by and large, target prostitutes and fringe dwellers. By now, you surely understand that I am atypical. I've obviously zero compunctions regarding murder but my criteria are stringent. Granted, I have no objection to committing homicide, and to object to the existence of serial killers would be to object to my own. The problem, as I see it, isn't my kind's tendency toward mayhem. It's that we're mostly cowards. Prostitutes and coeds. They're easy targets, which is why they're common victims. Simple to ensnare and child's play to kill. They are, however... Undeserving. The only thing they're guilty of is weakness. From where I stand, this is not a punishable offense. If you're a working girl with a habit, your life is bad enough, and doesn't warrant the introduction of someone like me. I considered it briefly when I realized that I was able to kill without regret. But another due consideration, I concluded that there were so many more worthy targets. Men like me are just the extreme edge of a spectrum. You know full well that daily life is full of monsters, rapists, child molesters, domestic abusers, and people who fight dogs. The smarter monsters shield themselves by virtue of social station and affable camouflage. They largely avoid detection because, as a society, we're foolish enough to think that monsters look like monsters. So when I learned that I could kill that I was good at it, that I enjoyed it. I did some profound soul-searching. Yes, Detective, I think I have a soul. It is a thing entirely different than yours, agreed, but it exists. I concluded that hunting the weak, the unfortunate, was far too easy. It seemed appropriate that a monster should stalk monsters. Look back at your list. That lawyer embezzled from the children's charity he founded. He beat his wife. Serendipity, detective. Sheer stupid coincidence is how I found him. A Saturday evening. Was out for dinner. Downtown. Ate at a little greasy spoon near the river. And decided to walk around for a while. It was early. There were enough people around to hide me. I was cutting through a parking garage. Heard a slap and a wretched little whimper snuck toward the sound and saw him, pushing his wife against the side of their $80,000 car. Do you want it again? Do you want it again? He's asking her. He was so calm. She stood inside the cage his arms formed, eyes down, crying, shaking her head, no, 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 no. I opened the door of a truck I hid behind, slammed it hard. They couldn't see me. It broke his concentration. They got into their car and left. Because I memorized the license plate. With a modicum of perseverance and basic internet fluency, you can track a plate number. Well, then I went to his house and killed him, detective. Watched his wife leave and then walked up and rang the bell. When he answered the door, I hit him with a hammer and pushed him inside. Beat his head into liquid and cleaned the place out. It looked like a robbery, more or less. My planning was solid, so I wasn't terribly worried about getting caught. There was nothing to connect us, and I'd established a plausible alibi. That's how I discovered the embezzlement, though. Raiding his desk. Now, go back to the list. The preacher was a rapist. Yes, both women who accused him told the truth. There were six more that I'm aware of. I read the article about his accusers. You know better than I. False rape accusations are so rare as to be statistically non-existent. So two was enough to attract my interest. I assumed a name. I went to his church, volunteered for potlucks and bake sales and outreach, and kept my ears open. There's no creature as mean-spirited as a church lady detective. They're enthusiastic purveyors of gossip, and virtuosos of character assassinations. With an unparalleled gift for shifting blame... So each time I heard his little geriatric coven of self-righteous groupies malign a pretty young woman, I added another checkmark to the list. Caught him in the alley behind the church late one Sunday, and shot him in the head. Broke it down and threw it in the river, across about five miles of the greenway. I can tell you that it was a 9 millimeter stayer and that the ammo was a DRT elite. Best proof I can offer. The coach was a pederast. Before I eliminated him, I befriended him, sat next to him in a bar one night, started a conversation. Only took a couple of weeks, and I was drinking at his house. Eventually, I said the right things, made the right allusions, blew the proper dog whistles, and he told me all about it. He made a show of remorse, feigned conflicting emotions, but I'm a monster too. I wasn't fooled. He meant none of it, a special child, each session he told me. The man coached for sixteen years, detective. Sixteen special children damaged and sent into the world with his darkness seated inside them. No argument. I am a monster. But he was a degenerate ogre. He deserved death completely. And I defy you to defend his existence. That's nonsense. If it had been left to the justice system, he would have created another ten, fifteen special children and died happy and blameless. He was eulogized as a pillar of the community, mourned as a civic leader. The consequences dispensed by the system are, at best, arbitrary. Would you like to ask his special children if they feel justice was served? The social contract also discourages the rape of children, detective. And tell me, honestly, how much justice do you see meted out in the course of your work? All those hookers on your list? Someone killed them. Killed them and got away with it. You won't catch him. Not unless you get extremely lucky. No one but you cares about them. Gary Ridgway killed and killed and killed for twenty years. He was questioned eighteen years before he was apprehended. Open your files. Look at your persons of interest. You may have already met him. No, ma'am. I've told you nothing but the truth. Now tell me the truth. Every time you cuff a murderer, a rapist, for the briefest of moments... For perhaps a moment longer than brief. Don't you consider just putting your gun against their head and solving the problem? My conviction rate is 100%, detective. And unless you become willing to apply my methods, my closing ratio will always exceed yours. There are so many monsters. And so few of you. Ponder your co-workers for a moment. It's unlikely that I'm the only goblin present in this building. The smart monsters hide, detective. And there's a lot of room to lurk behind that blue line. Dark Passenger, my ass. It's an entertaining literary device, but unrealistic. We don't feel regret. We don't know remorse. There's no internal conflict. It makes for a compelling story arc, but that's all. My decisions were never based in ethics. They were pragmatic. Pragmatic and egotistic. Any garden variety savage can be a Gacy or a Bundy or a Kemper. Easy targets, easy kills. I avoided low-hanging fruit because I'm superior to my peers. I am a higher class of monster. Yes, I've seen those interviews as well. Kemper is anomalous, even amongst us. We're rarely that intelligent. I'd like to think I'm smarter than he is. Of course, he surrendered and I was caught. And here we sit, eh? Getting caught is the only thing I regret. That I got careless. Men like me. We are all heroically arrogant. It is frequently our undoing. We become convinced of our ineffability. We become imprudent. I regret that I'm in here and not out there. I had so much work to do. I have a little list, detective. Monsters that remain unpunished. You can have it if you'd like. Fair enough. The offer stands. When you reach your threshold of frustration, come and find me. I noticed the board on the way in. Fifteen homicides this year and only six of them closed. It's almost autumn. Your work also remains undone. Perhaps some of them are mine. I didn't manage to read the wall entire. Second row, third column. Was he a science teacher from the suburbs? Then you're down to eight, Detective. Congratulations. He was another pederast. A useful rule of thumb in seeking monsters. Male coaches of JV girls sports are almost always guilty. Not all, admittedly, but a statistically significant portion. Your job will be simplified if you are always suspicious of coaches and youth pastors. Yes, it has grown very late. Far be it for me to keep you from your dinner and your family. Because you're wearing a ring. It was an educated guess. I know nothing of your family or your life outside this room. I presume you're not a monster, too, since I was hitherto utterly ignorant of your existence. You can pick up again whenever it suits you, ma'am. I'll be here. Bring back your list. And when you've become saturated with disgust, when you've seen one too many statements retracted, one too many child killer freed on technicality, one too many vicious pervert abetted by facile lawyers and defective rule of law, when you're ready, I'll bring mine. Oh, it's into double digits now. I've been very busy, with so much practice. I can find the others in this deviant tribe with alarming ease. Even with due consideration given to your line of work, you'd be appalled at our ubiquity. We are your sons. We are your husbands. We are everywhere. And there will be more of you dead tomorrow. Good night,
4: Detective. That was Elias Perry's There Are So Many Monsters, a Tales to Terrify original. As read by Jacob Wacholtz, Jake Wacholtz has finally found his career path in education and completed his first year of teaching this past year, where he taught special education math. His hobby is hobbies, and now that includes reading horror stories for Tales to Terrify. He lives in Ohio with his wife, daughter, and dogter. Thank you, Jake. And here comes another Tales to Terrify original from Trey Ellis. Trey Ellis grew up across from an empty field where she spun a lot of imaginary adventures, helping to prepare her for a lifetime of writing. When she isn't writing, she keeps busy by hiking, cooking, baking, and being too busy to keep her home in any semblance of order. Currently, she tries to find a balance between the logical way she thinks and the flights of fancy that she often daydreams about. Mostly the daydreams are winning. Ah, hear that, Trey. Here comes Trey Ellis's Devouring Delios.
0: The children screeched and recoiled. Delios gave them a moment to catch their breaths and then another moment to let their minds wander to darker places before he continued the story. All they ever found was an empty sneaker on the path with the shoelaces still tied. The two children were gone. Around the campfire, twenty sets of eyes stared unblinking with the fire reflecting in their pupils, and twenty mouths hung open. A piece of wood in the depth of the fire cracked, and some of the children jumped. An animal rustled dry leaves in the forest, and the children leaned in, crowding fractionally closer together and taking a breath almost as one as they returned from the depths of their imaginations to reality. Delios drank it all in. That's all the stories for tonight. Time for bed. Up to the platform. Delios and the other camp counselors responsible for the special overnight forest trip shooed the children away from the fire. Their sleeping bags were already laid out on the permanent wooden platforms that kept the kids from roughing it on the rocks and waking up sodden with morning dew. Delios banked the fire. He'd stoke it again in the morning into something minuscule and manageable, more for camping atmosphere than for usefulness. He'd douse it entirely once the campers left the area on their hike back to the main camp. But for now, having the red embers glowing helped the children get to sleep, like keeping the closet light on. Delios's attention perked up as he heard the children whisper to each other. That was the scariest story I've ever heard, said one girl. Me too. I'll never be able to fall asleep, said another. Did you hear that? Asked one boy. What? Replied his friend. Something's in the trees. The boy's voice quavered, and he pulled his sleeping bag up over his head. Helios puttered with the coals and let their words wash over him. How was camp? Mom asked during pickup while Dad hauled Samantha's gear into the station wagon. It was great. I learned to canoe and whittle, and I made these. Samantha held up her wrist and waggled the knotted embroidery floss bracelets. We need to buy thread so I can make more. I promised I'd send them to all my friends. And she cried all night during the overnight because the counselor told us a scary story. Matt, her brother, tattled on her. I did not, Samantha protested. She'd been terrified all night long, but she hadn't cried. You did too. Matt stuck his tongue out at her. Delios had to check on you all night long because you were sobbing and keeping everyone else awake. That's not true. Samantha stuck her tongue out back at Matt. I didn't cry once. Only her new best friend Sarah knew she'd been so deeply scared, and that was because Sarah had been too petrified to fall asleep too. Sarah had been the one crying. Delios had checked on both of them a couple times, but not all night long. He'd been very kind to Sarah and let her hold on to his counselor whistle so she could be safe. He'd given Samantha a conspiratorial grin. Delios, her mom asked and then laughed. That's the name of the counselor who told scary stories around the campfire when I came here as a child. I wonder if it's the same man. His stories made such an impression on me. I remember it like it was yesterday. She ran her fingers through her hair. He'd be older now, of course. Yeah, Samantha chimed in. Delios is really old. I think he's almost 30. Her mom and dad exchanged a look. Yes, that's ancient, her dad said and looked skyward like he did sometimes. Can't be the same man, her mother said. The Delios of my day was in his late 20s as well. Nobody's a career camp counselor for that long. Eventually, he'd have gotten a real job. More than one person in the world can use the name Delios, her dad muttered. I don't blame her one bit for being frightened. Mom spoke in a voice she meant to be low enough for only her dad, but Samantha could hear them very well. If it was even half as scary as in my day, it'll be a week before she stops having nightmares. Samantha knew she wouldn't have nightmares. She wished she would. Being that, completely frightened, had been a thrill. She'd never experienced anything so intense before. She wanted more of that frozen, heart-pounding, exhilarating feeling. Probably she'd have to wait until next summer to go to camp again to hear another story from Delios. In the meantime, she would have to find other ways to be scared. Sneak in a horror movie at the theater... Figure out a way to watch television after 10 o'clock when all the strong adult stuff came on and she was supposed to be in bed. Maybe even look for ghost and ghoul stories in the library. It was so scary that when I had to go to the bathroom, it was still dark and I held it until it got light out. Mom, I don't want to come back here next year. Emma clutched at her mother's shirt as tears streamed down her face. Darling, it was just a story. Samantha told her daughter. It was pickup day from camp, the day after the overnight camping excursion. This was Emma's first year, and Samantha had such fond memories of camp that she'd hoped this would be one of those bonding things between mother and daughter. But she should have realized. Emma was a sensitive child and very empathetic. She felt things too keenly, Where Samantha remembered the overnight scary campfire stories with delicious relish and adored the heady, horrifying feeling, her daughter reacted differently. It wasn't just a story, Emma insisted. There was something evil. I could tell. I could feel it. A fresh stream of tears fell from Emma's eyes, but a defiant and willful look also came into her face. Samantha thrilled to see her timid Emma stand up for herself. I will not come back here ever, 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 Emma stamped one foot. If that's what you want, we'll find a different camp for next summer, Samantha said. She exchanged looks with Josh, her husband. He just shrugged. You said the best scary stories in the world were here. Looks like you knew what you were talking about. Josh grabbed Emma's suitcase and flung it into the back of the SUV. Samantha sighed. In her memory, it had been fun. Scary, yes, but safe, too, with all her friends around her. Of course, she'd had her brother, and Emma was an only child. That sort of thing did make a difference. I even remember the counselor's name who told the best stories. Delios. It's been nearly 20 years. I wonder what he did with his life. Emma clutched her arm. That's him. That's the one who told the stories. Same guy, Josh wondered. I suppose it's possible. Could be. It's been a long time, but lots of counselors are teachers, and if he has his summers off, he could come back to scare the pants off generations of kids. Samantha hugged her daughter. Or maybe it's just someone else named Delios. There's more than one person in the world with the name. Samantha frowned. An odd feeling of deja vu swept over her. When had she heard that before? Sure, Josh said easily. He closed the back of the SUV. All set. Time to head back to civilization. Emma's words and strength of fear haunted Samantha for a few days, as well as the uneasy feeling that she knew something but couldn't put her finger on it. The week passed on. Emma finally stopped having nightmares and Samantha looked at the calendar. Tonight would be the wooded overnight for a whole new group of young, impressionable campers. Her own memories were faded, and she was unsure of her perception as an 11-year-old. She adored the rush of being scared out of her wits while Emma brought home nightmares. She and her daughter had different personalities, but was that the only reason they'd reacted in completely opposite ways? Her instincts, honed over years of becoming a damned good lawyer, Prickled. Samantha picked up her cell phone and called the camp, framing a plan in her mind. She wanted to observe the night's storytelling. She wanted to hear the stories and experience the setting. Hello, may I speak to the director, please? Samantha mustered her arguments as the director came on the line. Mr. Fitzroy, I'm calling because I'm concerned about my daughter. She attended your camp last week and came home just beside herself after the overnight. Samantha explained more about the situation along with what she wanted. She blended legal ease with an appeal for empathy. I'm sure if I could observe the fireside story, then I could comfort my daughter and this won't have to go any farther. I think that's a very reasonable request, Dr. Jean Fitzroy said. By the end of the conversation, he was more than amenable to any suggestions she made that helped a vulnerable camper and kept them from dealing with an initiated lawsuit. Thank you, Jean. It seems like the best first step, Samantha hedged. She didn't want him too comfortable with the solution. Let him think there may yet be a lawsuit. I don't see any reason we can't accommodate you. I'll personally escort you to the overnight site. It's hardly a five-minute walk, and there's a back road that goes straight there. We take the campers on a circuitous hiking path so they think it is farther than it is, but they're very close to the main camp. Safe all the time, he assured her, having explained this twice already. The word safe dribbled out of his mouth like oatmeal had out of her daughter's when she'd been a toddler. Samantha felt a pinch of guilt that she'd rattled him so hard. He seemed like a decent man. By the end of the conversation, they'd agreed to meet later that evening for a walk out to the overnight site. Dressed for battle with mosquitoes and mud, upon arriving at camp, Samantha found Director Fitzroy to be a plump, short, pleasant man who deeply believed in the power of summer camp for children. Fresh air, exercise, and new friends cured a lot of ills. Samantha nodded at his platitudes as he led her along the back dirt road. Here we go, 50 yards this way and we'll be there, he said, showing her the path hidden within the trees. After a dozen paces, Samantha looked back and indeed the forest foliage had closed in on them, hiding the road entirely. We use this road for the children who are too scared or get sick or what have you. We can evacuate them swiftly to the main area and deal with the crisis. It spoils the mystique, so we're careful not to reveal it to the others. Makes perfect sense. Delios usually starts telling stories around dark. The campfire's going, the children have already set up their sleeping bags and had dinner. They've had a chance to become familiar with the layout of the area. It does get dark as he tells the stories, which is all part of the theater. Of course. Samantha kept her voice agreeable. She wanted Jean to feel comfortable and spill all the secrets of the camp. Has Delios been here long? A few years, as far as I know. This is my third year as director. That's the longest director tenure in a decade. I see. Samantha mused over that bit of knowledge. She suspected as much. With that type of turnover, nobody was keeping tabs on lowly camp counselors other than to make sure they passed their background checks and showed up for work. Here we are, Fitzroy said. Samantha stopped paying attention to the man as soon as she stepped into the camping area. Everything modern faded away and she felt as if she'd stepped back in time. Helios was there, crouched in front of the fire, holding the rapturous attention of two dozen children. His voice slid out into the night, changing in tone or intensity as the story demanded it. He flicked his hands to emphasize movement and changed his expression to match that of the characters. She wasn't scared. She'd heard this story of the two missing campers before. But Delios had his audience in the palm of his hand. Their fear was rising. She could see it in their faces. She could feel it in the air. Delios paused in his story and flicked his attention to her, the firelight dancing in his eyes, his face inscrutable. He smiled and returned to telling the story, the children shivering and screaming at all the right moments. Samantha stayed as if rooted in place. She felt the crescendo of emotions tumbling out of the children, gilding the air. She could practically taste the crisp tang of their terror, like the first bite of a tart apple. After a moment of growing used to it, the apple becomes far sweeter. Thelios banked the fire low until only a few flames danced among the glowing coals. He checked on a few of the campers, patting their heads, handing out glow sticks from his pockets. Ah, thought Samantha, that was new. Then he came over to her, and she thought her memory must be faulty. It couldn't be him, not the same man she remembered from her days at camp but her memories remained strong and clear. In his mid-twenties, with fathomless brown eyes set beneath heavy eyebrows, he looked unchanged. His youthfulness made him seem harmless. It is you, she said to him, keeping her voice low. I remember you, he said. It isn't often I find another like myself. All grown up now, he sniffed the air. You've found a way to feed yourself, but a paltry meal of wasted lives. You must be hungry. I'm a lawyer. No wonder, he replied, scared of prison, scared of retribution, scared of their own lawyer. You're living off the sludge of fear. And you aren't, Samantha glanced to the children. You've been feeding off of them, their fear keeping you young. Even as she said it, she knew it to be true. How much do you steal? Very little, he waved the accusation off. A few days, at the most a year, from those who are very afraid. It comes from the end of their lives, nothing to be paid for years to come. Their fear is pure. You tasted it just now, he sighed. But I give them a gift in exchange. A night to shiver and quake and wake safely and go home, and always remember to look over their shoulder. You should know. Of all I've seen, you learned the most. The horror Samantha experienced that hearing his words wasn't the sliver of delicious, cold dread she'd come to enjoy. It opened a pit of emptiness in her soul. He'd been stealing years from the lives of children. He'd stolen from her. He'd stolen from Emma. No, Samantha said. No more. Delios raised his chin and licked his lips. This is even better than the children. He closed his eyes, inhaling deeply. You're so afraid. Exquisite. Samantha shuddered and opened her mouth to protest, but her throat tightened and no sound came out. Delios put one of his fingers against her lips. Time to eat you all up. Mustn't have you run back and warn everyone. Cold terror slicked down Samantha's spine. She could feel the tug and pull of his hunger as it slurped up her anxiety, licked along her faltering courage and drained away the core of her being. Delicious, he said, and the smug self-satisfaction of it flared Samantha's anger to life. Nobody ate her. Nobody. She picked her teeth with the bones of the lawyers who dared oppose her. And nobody harmed her child. Anger and protection surged in equal measures, filling up the deep well of her soul with something far more powerful than fear. Samantha chomped back. What? Delios gasped. What are you doing? Samantha grinned. Devouring you. She gobbled him whole, his screams of protest swallowed down. Yards away, the children in their uneasy slumber didn't even stir. The empty shell of Delios swayed on its feet, and Samantha could see into its hollowed eyes before it tumbled over. Delios! Gene Fitzroy shouted. Samantha realized he'd been there the whole time although she thought perhaps he hadn't been privy to the entire exchange. The camp came alive with the sudden effort to resuscitate a fallen counselor, and the sprightly, clinging confusion and fear from the roused children made Samantha stumble back a few steps. How difficult they were to resist when they were so delectable. Delius rumbled in her gut. Samantha burped and patted her stomach. Stay down. Thelios obediently settled, his essence slowly beginning to digest. He had been intoxicating. The wan emotions of the children couldn't even compare. Samantha craved more. She backed away from the frenzied activity and eased along the path to the main camp where her car waited. First, she would go home and return the stolen year to Emma. Then she would see who else needed to be devoured.
4: That was Trey Ellis's Devouring Delios, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by Alex Ford. When Alex Ford isn't rocking around the nation in her band Ford Theater Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life, you can check out her exploits, Mystery Bruises, and A Most Handsome Cat on Facebook or Instagram. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Alex. That'll be a show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitzie, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
3: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www district of wonders.com. thank you for listening